Good morning. I was asking Chris about the new stage design because a lot of people were making these little paper chains for the last three weeks. And I asked him, so what's the meaning behind this? And he goes, whatever you want it to be. (laughs) So here's what I thought when I first saw it. And we just sang about it. The phrase, he has broken every chain. And so I see this as a symbol of our chains that are broken and we hang them around the cross. Amen? So that's my interpretation. You can have your own, but that's where I'm at. For those that are visiting, we want to welcome you and those that are online as well. We've been in a series in James, but we're going to pause it because this is Holy Week. And so I want to talk about something this week and next week, and then we'll continue James after that. Now, if you've been following the news, and I said this last week, the Star Barn and Ironstone Ranch have been highlighted. In fact, it's gone national. And part of the fallout on their business has been nothing less than devastating, at least in the world's eyes. And it's a really an illustration of how, in the name of tolerance, we really are intolerant. But here's what we don't understand. CJ Catering, who caters their meals, is a separate organization, separate business. And I know the owner personally. She made comment that people are calling her up. And even though they have their own set of core values and practices, groups are pressuring her to refuse to cater any events at the Star Barnes property. And she's losing business. Now, I know all this sounds crazy, doesn't it? The movie Unplanned that I mentioned a few weeks ago, true story of Abby Johnson. She's a Planned Parenthood director, and the story talks about her journey to where she saw the reality of that small child actually being a child instead of what she grew up to believe. Now, the backstory of that is this, and I saw an interview this past week with her. She is under vicious social media attack. They are saying that everything in the movie is a lie. It's untrue. She made it up. And now they're saying the lead actress in the movie, who stars Abby Johnson, has probably ruined her career in Hollywood. Now, like I said last week, we could discuss the issues of fairness and social justice. But that's not where we park as followers of Jesus, is it? The question for us is, What does it mean for us to follow Jesus in the midst of all this? Francis Schaeffer, back in the 70s, I'm showing my age, wrote a book called How Then Shall We Live that asked that question. And what's interesting was back in the 70s, he predicted where we are today based on the paths and decisions the church and Christians and our government were making. He says, listen, if we keep this up, here's where it's going to be someday. So the question we have to ask ourselves this morning is, what did Jesus and what does Jesus say about life? We use phrases like counterculture or we think differently. But what does that mean? Paul, who hated Christians, so he became one. His friends became his enemies and his enemies became his friends. But Paul said, listen. Christ 
has set us free. Don't choose to go back to being slaves. The idea there is that our desires control us. In fact, he says how we do that is we walk in the spirits. And then here's what he says in Galatians chapter 5, verse 22 and 23. You can follow with me in your scripture or on the screen. He says, after talking about all these desires that enslave us, he says, but the fruit of the spirit or the desires of God is love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Think about self-control for a moment. God knows that none of us desire to be controlled by an appetite. Amen? The truth is we spend a lot of time and money trying to get and stay free from our appetites. And that's why it's Christ who breaks our chains. It was Jesus himself who said in John 8, verse 32, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Now, part of that truth we find in Matthew chapter 6, verse 24. I mentioned this last week. I don't want to look into it again because of the significance of Holy Week. Jesus said, no one can serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other. or He will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Now, if you and I were to fill that blank in, You cannot serve God and what would you choose? I mean, for us and for me, I might choose something like drugs or alcohol or work or family or church or sports. You know, all these things, all these desires that kind of wrap us up. But Jesus chose money and you have to ask why. Well, we talked about this last week that money is one of the chief competitors for our hearts. But what Christ was identifying was this whole quest for more. This quest that says this, you think and feel you would have a better life if you had more of it. Whatever more of it is, doesn't matter. But you think and feel that you would have a better life if you had more of it. I know some ladies are saying, you know, if I had more of my husband, I'd have a better life. Amen? (laughs) Men are saying, well, if I had my wife, better life, this kind of thing. But think about that phrase. Now, he gives us the key to the life. It's found in Matthew 6, verse 33, later on. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. And of course, he's talking about priorities. And he asks us the question is, is there something else over our desires other than our desire for Christ? And what he says here is, if you want life, you have to live in a world where you do not go first. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Now that's so counterculture on so many levels, we have a hard time grasping this. And so do the disciples. In Matthew chapter 20, we really see the story of Jesus coming up to Jerusalem, what we often call Palm Sunday, where he is celebrated as the Messiah, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, and he's given this royal welcome, and then they crucify that king six days later. But we see Jesus and his followers going up to Jerusalem. And again, Jesus is trying to communicate. He's trying to be absolutely clear about why they're going up to Jerusalem. So here's what he says. He goes, listen. When we go up to Jerusalem, here's what's going to happen. The chief priests and scribes, they're going to put me on trial. 
They will condemn me. They'll give me over to the Gentiles. They'll mock me, beat me, crucify me. I will die. But give me three days and I'll rise again. Now, in the context of this conversation, just remember what happened the day before. What was he doing? He was with Lazarus. Remember what happened to Lazarus? He died. And there was a funeral. And everyone was wondering why Jesus wasn't there. Because if Jesus was there, he could have healed Lazarus. He didn't have to die. But he brings Lazarus back from the dead. And that was the final straw for the religious leaders. In fact, it's interesting. In scripture, it says from that day forward, they made plans to kill Jesus. And they also wanted to kill Lazarus. Why? Because let's get rid of anyone who contradicts our version of life. So here we are. Credible miracle. Jesus laying out the Jerusalem strategy. So they see the miracle. He's talking to them. And what are they talking about on the way to Jerusalem? Can you guess? Who's going to be number two and who's going to be number three? And James and John must have been mama boys because they got mom involved. And she goes to Jesus and says, listen, Jesus, you know, I got two really good boys here. They knew Jesus was going to be number one, but among the 12, they were fighting over who was going to sit on the left and who was going to sit on the right. And even though Jesus was absolutely clear on several occasions in their minds, their truth was Jesus was going to go to Jerusalem. He was going to rip off his rabbi robe. He was going to announce his kingship. And he was going to do his God thing because they saw it time and time again. He walked on water. He walked out of crowds that tried to kill him. He fed 5,000. He fed 4,000. He raised Lazarus from the dead. He was going to overthrow Rome and the religious order. That is their version of truth. So Jesus hears them discussing. He hears mom trying to get James and John in in number two and number three. And he says, listen, guys, you know that the way they do power in our world is to have power over. And then he says this interesting phrase, it is not so with you. He goes, you don't go first. You want to be great in my kingdom? Here's what he says in Matthew 20, 28. Even as the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He says, here's how it works in my kingdom. You have to serve everyone else. You got to flip the script. You want power? You got to serve. Let's move forward to the scene, okay? Come to Jerusalem. He has this story. He preaches to them. He tells them this. Last supper, what happens? They're still trying to figure out who's number two, number three. They're still having that conversation. Now in that, and Jesus knew this, that somebody had already set in motion his betrayal. And Judas claimed that Jesus was his master, but really money was his master because he sold him out. And that's the insidious nature of idols. It causes us to do unthinkable things to those who are closest to us. And many of you are aware of that. So they're having this discussion. He's talking to them again, and they're not listening. So he gets up, goes to the corner, 
He takes his robe off, he wraps a towel around him, and he starts washing their feet. And of course, they're kind of all stunned because they realize that they forgot to do that. They weren't being hospitable to their master. And of course, Peter gets all righteous and religious and says, well, Jesus, not only my feet, but my whole body. And Jesus says, you know, Peter, in three days, I mean, not in three days, in one day, you're going to deny me three times. And of course, Peter doesn't have enough sense to listen that when Jesus says something, guess what? It's true, isn't it? Have you ever been there where Jesus had said things to you and say, you know what? I'm the exception to the rule. But here's what Jesus says then in John 13, verses 12 through 17. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. There it is. We came not to be served, but to serve. For I've given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, and that is the word, amen, amen. And they put it at the front of the sentence, so it means I tell you the truth. I tell you the truth. I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Do you want to be great? Again, Matthew 20, verse 26. It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And so Jesus says, listen, here's how... Great works in my kingdom. You have to serve everyone else. You got to flip the script. Here's how the world operates. Here's how you operate. But again, the question is, what does this look like? It's nice to know this truth. It's nice to hear the biblical principles but what are the practical outworkings of this kind of thinking and living? Let's go back to Matthew 6.33. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. There's three principles here. One, we have to put Jesus ahead of us. Amen. Two, we have to put his definition of right and wrong ahead of us. It's not what we think, it's what he says. And three, we have to trust Jesus for the rest. What are all these things that will be added? Well, it's all those stuff that we worry about, that we get anxiety over, that we fret about. He says, listen, trust me. And think about how many times our default is not to Christ, but to self. And our conversations go something like this. Well, this makes sense to me. And what that really means is, if you want to be right, you have to agree with me. This is not fair. Well, that that means it's based upon your perceptions of fairness. And usually fairness and social justice comes into play when it impacts us personally. And this sense of fairness, don't we wrestle with pride and and humility? You know, pride says, I'm owed. In fact, I'm owed more than I have. And we say that usually on payday or bonuses or raises. 
Humility says life is a gift. It's a privilege. Pride makes us believe that we are the author of what has been given to us as a gift. Humility views life as a gift. And this is radically different than how our world operates. We operate out of a sense of entitlement. I deserve or I earned. Now let me try to unpack this in some practical ways. And I like to make sense out of this enormous difficulty that we face. And I'm going to give some illustrations and they are not to exalt myself or anyone else or to look down on myself or anyone else. So I want to put that as a disclaimer. I hope, and I hope we can all agree on this, that we as Christians, life is a journey. Amen. And we are either moving closer to Christ or away from him. And we all have good days and we have bad days. Amen. You know, Life is messy. Now, my role at GBC, I don't know what you think it is, but here's what I understand it to be. It's twofold. One is to preach God's word, and the other is to lead. And lead is help other people, help people, as well as me helping people to see Jesus. I mean, that's why the church exists. We want to introduce people to Jesus. So based on Jesus and what he said and what he did, I got to look at my role and ask the question, how can I serve and not be served? How can I take upon myself the town, the basin and wash feet? And when I say I, what I mean is me and my wife, because we are a team, it's the two becoming one. So understand this is a team deal. So even though I use I, it is us. Okay. So, part of what this means is, I just do not preach, I have to live out what I preach. You're not the same, man. And if I want you to do, and to live out what I preach, and what Jesus says, then I have to do it as well. You know, the last two weeks in James, we've been talking about the downside of materialism, and how it brings harm, and the upside of generosity, which flies in the face of our world. You know, Jesus flips the script and how we handle our possessions. So what this means is that I, as your pastor, have to serve you with my generosity. As God speaks to me when I preach, it means I have to listen and execute. And sometimes this looks a bit crazy. Amen? I think sometimes when preachers preach, you assume that I have everything in order and everything in line. And what you need to understand is that I wrestle with everything as you wrestle with it. I just get hit over the head all week long as I'm studying. You just get it for, what, an hour on Sunday morning? But let me give this illustration. Some of you would know this story if you came to what was called congregational meeting. But for those that don't, uh, it was back in 2017. I preached in the book of Nehemiah. Now, the only way I knew that is I had to go back and look at my records. I don't have that good of a memory of what I preached and what I didn't. And when I first came to GBC, there was issues with our budget, expenses, baselines that needed adjusting. As I was preaching through Nehemiah, there was a haunting truth that kept plaguing me as I studied. And it was about Nehemiah coming to a situation where some necessary changes needed to take place. 
And one of those had to do with taxes, inflation, economy as a whole. And then it says this. For 12 years, he served. He did not take the governor's wage nor the benefits. And he did some crazy things like giving away his food portions to other people, having the poor into his house and feeding them and other kinds of things. And I say it was haunting because in the midst of trying to figure out our fixed costs, our fixed costs are what's called people and building expenses. There were several options to deal with it. Most of what would seem logical in our culture. What's logical in our culture is, well, you downsize. You know, you get rid of some staff. You lay someone off. Or you could do a straight percentage. You just cut everybody the same. When I looked at that option, we have some families that still have their kids at home. And that would have been a very stressful, heavy burden on them. And God was whispering in my ear. He says, listen. He says, I want you to consider a modified version of what Nehemiah did. You serve first for the sake of DBC and your staff, and you take a towel and you start washing, and you trust me for the rest. Now, what that meant was, and if you came to congregational meeting, you would have heard me explain this in greater detail, is that Bev and I took a cut in our pay, and I trusted that God would replace that by me just working several hours outside of the congregation. Now, we did that, and God has been faithful. He has supplied and we didn't do it because we wanted people to say, oh, what a wonderful, nice pastor and wife we have. It's because God was asking us to flip the script. And so the challenge here during this Holy Week is for everyone to think differently about everything. Just not stuff and money. But my role here now has become more of what I consider a player coach. Where I do it, but I also train people to do it. And I also am accountable to leadership council who one of the issues was, will my preaching suffer because I'm doing this? I said, well, that's your job. If my preaching suffers, you need to tell me and I need to adjust. But here's the point. If you love Jesus, you'll love his church. The church is full of sinners trying to figure life out. Amen. And if you love Jesus and love his church, you will love GBC. And GBC, if you didn't know this, it takes everyone to put on a towel and to wash feet. It takes everyone to serve instead of being served. Because the crazy nature of this is that when we serve, it's when we are served. You know, it's when we serve that we find what Paul says in Galatians. Love, joy, peace, patience, self-control. So why does GBC exist? Why does the church exist? How will it exist? Those are questions we have to ask. And we realize there is and there will be a lot of injustices. But hear the words of Jesus. When he said, it is not so with you. Figure out in light of all this injustice, figure out what's happening around our culture. How do we serve and not to be served? How do we bless and not curse? Now, let me give you one last thought and comment on how all this works and what this means. We as a church have to, what I call, set the stage and then allow God to do what only God can do. Amen? Let me unpack this. Countless examples in Scripture. 
And what we need is callous examples for the world to sit up and see these kinds of things. Take Elijah, contest, false prophets of Baal. They, he had to build the altar. He had to put the sacrifice on the, on the altar. He had to pour the water on the altar. Who sent the fire? God did. Elijah could not send the fire, but he set the stage for God to work. I love the story of Jehoshaphat. He's the king. He's in an impossible situation. Enemies united. They're outnumbered 10 to 1. Jehoshaphat says, what do I do? God says, listen, do what you're supposed to do. Get your army, get your singers, put them out front. So the worship team actually went out front. And he goes, I want you to go out, stand on the hillside, hold a worship service. I'll take care of the rest. The phrase was, stand still and see the salvation of God. So Jehoshaphat did that. And only God could do what God did. And all those armies turned against each other. In fact, it says that there wasn't a single person left standing. I've always said to myself, if there was just two of us left in the field, I look around and saw all these bodies. I'd say to the guy, listen, why don't we just kind of part ways and pretend we didn't see each other and move on? Gideon. He says, I want you to take an army from tens of thousands to a few hundred. Why? Because when I give you victory, people will know that the only way you pulled this off is because of me. He says, people, flip the script. Do what God tells you to do. It will fly in the face of what our culture says is the way to handle greatness. You want to be great? Serve someone else. You want to be first? You must let everyone go ahead of you. And when all the voices around you argue about the way it should be and what is fair and what is just, remember the words of Jesus. It is not so with you. Amen. I'm going to invite the worship team to come up. We're going to close with the song as they do. I want to pray with you. Let's pray. Father God, this is really hard for us to understand because we look at you and we think that somehow if we were walking with the disciples, we would listen differently. We probably wouldn't have. Because so much, so much is about us and about our pride and about our sense of fairness. And I pray, Lord, that at GBC here, we understand what it means to wrap a towel around to serve. I pray that we become a congregation that people sit and stand and see and are amazed. And the only explanation they can come with is, wow, God has to be doing something here because we know it can't be them. So I pray, Lord, that we get on our knees and we humbly submit ourselves before you. Any thoughts of pride that somehow we want to take credit for just goes away and we just do whatever is necessary. We serve. We see a piece of paper, we pick it up. If we see someone hurting, we, we go over and help them up and we pray with them. May that be so instilled in our DNA, Lord, that um, we become a congregation that reflects your glory. Because that's what Easter is all about. Nobody, even the disciples, could make sense out of your way to the cross. And it only made sense when you finally rose again. And I just pray that we live with a resurrected Christ. And not one made in our image with our human hands and our human minds. What an incredible privilege it is to worship you this morning. And we say thank you. And we humbly submit ourselves. And we worship to an audience of one.
We pray this in your name. And everyone said, amen.